Chapter Two of Yankee at Molokai by Eva K. Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Two, The Janesville Zouaves Volunteer. Events moved fast in 1861. In January, the members of Congress from Georgia resigned from their posts in Washington. A few days later, the Confederates seized the United States arsenal in Augusta. In February, Texas seceded from the Union, and on the same day, Louisiana seized the Minton Custom House at New Orleans. In rapid succession, delegates from the seceded states met to organize the Confederate government. Arkansas seized the arsenal at Little Rock. Fort Kearney, Kansas, fell to the south. Louisiana and Mississippi joined the Confederacy. As spring moved on, so did the Confederacy, with, seemingly, as much inflexibility as the seasons themselves. The southern army was able to do what it wanted, when it wanted, where it wanted. A few people who had hoped that the conflict would be settled short of all-out war realized now that war was inevitable. Abraham Lincoln called for volunteers. While the 6th Massachusetts Regiment was passing through Baltimore, it was attacked by an angry mob. There were deaths on both sides. There was an undertone of grimness, now, in the meetings of the Janesville Zouaves. Each young man was well aware that bayonet drill might be more than drill. It might be rehearsal. The handling and care of the gun had better be learned well. The knowledge might be vital. It hardly seems possible that we will go to war, Mrs. Dutton sighed. Mother, we are at war, protested Ira. I heard today that Colonel Ellsworth was killed on May 24th. Colonel Ellsworth? Was he the Captain Ellsworth who trained the Chicago Zouaves? Yes, he was leading some men into Virginia and stopped at a hotel near Alexandria. The proprietor ran up a Confederate flag on the hotel flagstaff. Almost within sight of the Capitol. Mrs. Dutton was shocked. Well, Colonel Ellsworth couldn't have that, Ira continued, so he leaped to haul it down, and the hotel owner shot him through the heart. Mrs. Dutton's eyes filled with tears but she brushed them impatiently away. She had come from a line of New Englanders, and the granite of the land was in her nature. The days lengthened and the sun grew warmer. Children could play outdoors after supper. Instead of pretend houses, little girls now had hospitals under the lilac bushes, and their dolls, though to an adult eye they might look like girl dolls, were wounded soldiers. The boys forgot their balls and tops and played at war, their wars, however, were very different from the real ones, because in theirs the Union always won. In real life the Confederacy seemed unbeatable. In July a Congress, which until then had seemed to be living in some sort of dream world, authorized the President to call out all militia and to ask for 500,000 volunteers. The Janesville Zouaves decided to go in a body into a volunteer regiment being formed in the area. Ira told his mother, We'll be going in September he said, and I've got a lot of things to wind up before then. What about the gymnasium? Mrs. Dutton asked. Well, since I own all the stuff, I think I'll give it away. I'm sure the boys will be delighted. Who will get what? They talked over the disposition of the equipment, both determined to keep all emotion out of the preparations. When you have a job to do, do it at once and as well as you can. Mrs. Dutton had both taught and lived by the maxim. So the days slipped by. Ira got rid of most of his possessions, discharged all his unfinished duties, and the morning for departure came. 
Stores along Main Street, which led to the railroad station, were decorated with flags and bunting and flowers, and as the Janesville Zouaves marched along with the other volunteers, crowds along the sidewalks clapped and cheered and sang. Somewhere along the route, a little yellow mongrel fell into line and stepped along as proudly as the rest. "'Take him along for a mascot,' yelled a man at the curb. "'The third Wisconsin has a bald eagle. You fellows adopt the tiger-colored dog.' suggested another. "'I bet he'd be a tiger, too, after a few days with the Janesville Zouaves,' said a third onlooker. Girls rushed out from the sidewalks to thrust bouquets of flowers into the hands of some particularly favored volunteer, and girls who didn't have affection for any special one just rushed out anyway and gave the posies to the soldier nearest at hand. They reached the station. The little yellow dog, his pleasant walk at an end, melted away in the crowd, and no one noticed his going. For now the reality of the fact of parting was appreciated fully, perhaps for the first time. Young fathers kissed wives and children hastily, and climbed quickly into the waiting train. Small boys listened wide-eyed to last-minute instructions. "'You are the man of the house now, Johnny. Take good care of your mother and the baby.' "'If the war is not over by fall, Tom,' You'll have to stay out of school until the crops are in. Young lovers drew out their farewells, and then realized that the quicker way was the better. Ira looked over the crowd. His Sunday school class had come in a body to say goodbye, and had presented him with a Bible and a hard-to-come-by heavy rubber raincoat. They moved back now, and Ira mounted the steps of the train. He turned once again, and there, far back in the station, he saw his mother. He sprang down and started to push his way through the crowd to her, but she shook her head and motioned him back. They had said their goodbyes at home. He climbed into the train and hurried to a window on the station side of the car. She saw him and drew from her pocket a snowy handkerchief. He saw her lips moving, and though the hiss of steam from the engine and the noise of the crowd would have drowned her words, he knew what she was saying. God bless my boy and watch over him. Smiling and serene, she waved until the train was far down the tracks. The 13th Wisconsin Volunteers was organized and ready. Ira, after a few days as a private, was made sergeant and appointed regimental quartermaster. Fort Treadway, where they were stationed, stood in the middle of a bleak prairie. To the shivering, homesick men, its bleakness was somewhat frightening, and the completely new life they met there was overpowering. Not only did few of the men with the exception of the Zouaves, know much about gunnery. They knew little about discipline. The Wisconsin in which they had grown up was almost a pioneer state, and individuality of necessity flourished. Now they had to stop being individuals and become parts of one big whole. His assignment to the quartermaster's corps had, at first, been a disappointment to Ira. He had thought of it as old man's work, behind the lines, busy with uniforms for friends, rather than bullets for enemies. But a week after the 13th had arrived at the fort, he found out how wrong he had been. An epidemic of measles broke out. At first it had seemed humorous, measles among grown men. But not many hours passed before everyone realized the seriousness of the situation. Measles could be, and was in many cases, a fatal illness. The hospital tents were soon filled to overflowing, and winter, which comes early in those parts, poked icy fingers through the canvas to hunt out the sick. 
Huts were needed, and it was up to the quartermaster to see that they appeared. Ira was grateful for his hours in the gymnasium. His strong muscles stood him in good stead. The Union Army had been in no way ready for war, and now, after a series of reverses, seemed completely disorganized. Supplies were difficult, almost impossible to get. Yet Fort Treadway needed supplies. They needed food and clothing and arms. Above all, they needed medicines. It was the quartermaster's duty to see that all the supplies were secured, and promptly. Lithe, vigorous, good to look at, affable, Ira was able to gain the affection and respect of men, both those under him and those over him. So, somehow, the huts were built. Many of the needed supplies were secured. Many, but not enough. Fort Treadway had expected that the 13th Wisconsin would be their only in passage on their way to join the Army of the Cumberland. Now, with the delay caused by the measles epidemic and the disorganization which resulted from it, fall moved into winter, and the men were still unable to leave. Yet they could not be properly cared for there. Try as he would, Ira could not get enough supplies, so that huts could be built to shelter all the men. And as the winds howled down from Canada, they brought twenty-five below zero cold upon the wretched soldiers. All the available cordwood had been used for heating the tents, but even where it seemed there was none left, Ira found some. His job was to look after the men, and he did. He had never been a talkative person, but in these miserable days he often made an effort to take the men's minds off their troubles. At home in Janesville, he had been a member of the volunteer fire department, he belonged to the East Side Number no. 2 Waterwitch Engine Company, which boasted 57 members. So now, when he met a Janesville man, he could always be sure of starting either a brisk argument or a session of reminiscences, depending on whether the other man had been a member of the Waterwitch or a rival group, for keen rivalry there was. And if he could find two men of different companies, neither of them the Waterwitch, he would egg them on into a healthy dispute as to which company responded first to the fire whistle, which put out the most fires, which bumper could throw a steam of water farthest. In the excitement of the argument, and the glow of remembering, their blood would circulate faster, and, for a while, they would forget where they were. Almost always the memory sessions would end up in a hearty laugh, for there was one story the men never tired of retelling. It was the story of one late December day, when an old barn caught fire, its destruction would not mean much financial loss to anyone, but putting the fire out would give advantage to one of the two companies tied for first place in the number of fires fought during the year. The alarm sounded, and the men of both companies extended themselves, as never before, to arrive first at the fire. They arrived at the same instant. Pump crews got busy with the great handles on either side of the water compartment, while the chiefs of each company argued whose fire it was. Each claimed it, each ordered the other to go. Neither moved, and tempers got as hot as the blaze in the barn. The men decided to solve matters by turning their hoses on each other, each hoping to drive the rivals off. But neither company would retreat. So, in the icy weather, the men got drenched, the barn burned to the ground, and neither company went up a step. The laughter which always went with the story invigorated the men and encouraged them to face dreary days with better heart. It was not too bad, as long as the soldiers who were well enough could march and drill, and keep busy with duties, which seemed to speak of some reason for having left home. But late December and early January brought almost daily snow. 
It was waist-high in the company streets, and it seemed to Ira that his problems were reaching a point of no solution. Trains and supplies were delayed. Drays and wagons were snowbound. It almost seemed as if the men would die of cold and hunger before ever smelling the smoke of battle. But on January 18, 1862, it was decided that the men were as ready as they ever would be. They entrained, detrained at Chicago, where, in spite of the cruel cold, a few people were out to cheer them as they marched through the streets. At the other station they climbed into a train again. A train headed south to war and, so they thought, to quick victory. End of chapter 2